0: We hope you'll join us forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever.
1: Welcome to today's episode of Films Unchained Podcasts. Today our episode is called The Shining Maze of the Mind as you'll we'll be discussing Stanley Kubrick's 1980 horror classic film, The Shining, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. This movie is also based on Stephen King's novel, The Shining. But that's not all. Today, we have a very special guest joining us on this episode. Today, Films Unchained podcast is collaborating with Take 97, a film podcast with the man himself, David Ingram our special guest and the co-host coming all the way from the United Kingdom. Recently, I was invited in David's podcast to discuss Quentin Tarantino's ninth film, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, where we had a wonderful discussion on the movie and Tarantino. He has a lot of knowledge in the world of movies and filmmaking. We learned that we even have similar tastes in movies, and that's how we first started to bond. At that moment, I realized that after him inviting me to his podcast i have to bring him here on films unchained to discuss the shining so without further ado ladies and gentlemen please welcome david ingram how you doing
0: all right as how you doing not too bad thank you thank you for the lovely introduction i feel like we've done ourselves a good favor there. i gave you a nice intro on at my episode and you've given me an equally nice one here so it's great to be here great to be on this episode and discussing the shining of all things it's great
1: Uh, Thank you so much for joining. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, David, I got to know you uh, a lot more like when we collaborated uh, on your podcast with Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. And it was amazing uh, joining you and basically uh, having an amazing conversation about Quentin Tarantino's movie. By the time you're listening to this, uh, if you go to uh, Take 97 uh, film uh, podcast, you'll notice there's an episode with him and me of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Check him out. He is one of the most persuasive uh, people when uh, recording his podcast. Like, once you listen to him, you'll get numb into his episode. You won't even feel about the time uh, and how long it is. Uh, check out uh, Take 97, a film podcast. Where can we find it, uh, David?
0: Uh, okay, very glad you asked. Uh, so pretty much anywhere that you get your podcast. So obviously, if you uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Uh, Anchor, as it is an Anchor original as well. Uh, But all the regular podcast sites that you're used to and you know and love, I'm probably on those. But those are the big ones. Spotify and Anchor, particularly uh, my popular (laughs) stations, I would say. Uh, But yeah, find us on there. And also check us out on our social media pages as well on Twitter and Instagram. It's at Take 97 Podcast or at Take underscore 97 Podcast. Uh, You'll find our content on there with loads of regular polls, images and stuff that we love about film, all the like as well, like we do on this podcast. So check us out on that. And uh, yeah, should we should we get started on this episode? I'm looking forward to this. This is very I'm very excited.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm very excited too. So as mentioned today we picked The Shining and to this day it is one of the most analyzed films of all time with Stanley Kubrick enjoying the idea of playing with our minds. I have no idea why Stanley. Uh, <laughs> anyways we're going to dive in to uh, Stanley Kubrick's magic coming to life, the symbols involved in this movie, the themes, Stephen King's takes, and our final take of The Shining. I first need to notify you like whether I'm gonna do the summary in this one. This movie has to be watched and I cannot tell you what happened, come on, you will miss out because this movie, you really need to be in, in like on the edge of your seat. You have to get numb to it. We're going to be talking about the messages and the elements involved. So if you haven't watched it, I urge you to pause this episode, watch it, then come back. Unless you read the book, that's a a different story. But anyways, David, let's get to it.
0: Absolutely. Uh, Right. So, yeah, let's kick off with a little bit of context, obviously, on The Shining. Uh, So obviously, if you haven't watched it, we are going to spoil this for you. So in short, The Shining is, as we've mentioned, its base is Stanley Kubrick film, 1980. It's based on a book by Stephen King, the prolific horror writer who has done such classics as It, all that sort of stuff like that there. Uh, And really, it's such a rich source material, but at the end of the day, that we're, as we're going to discover over this episode, we are going to discover there's quite a lot of differences in some respects for the good. Some respects are up for debate, but we're going to stick with the positiveness here and some more deeper things later. But uh, based on the Stephen King novel, and it's a very dark, twisted tale, the film itself is a psychological thriller. In a lot of respects obviously it's a classic of the horror genre as well just mentioned uh, but it's a genuine it's all based around it's a very confined cast set so it's got Jack Nicholson Shelley Duvall and young Danny Lloyd as the young Danny <laughs> same name there uh, in the main roles of Jack Torrance, Wendy his wife and their son Danny uh, and it's all about them and living in a hotel over the winter periods to look after this massive hotel, the, the Overlook Hotel that is left alone over these periods and needs basically looking after. So Jack and his family are a caretaker residency in the hotel, and they basically, the easy part is just trying not to go mad because getting a sense of cabin fever. And that is what sort of starts to unravel as we go through the film. Uh, the film itself, uh, it is such a visual masterpiece. We will delve into that in a little bit more in just a moment. but the real i i I, there's so much to unpack and we will get onto this in a minute but i just want to start you off with so obviously jack eventually goes mad uh, and tries to kill his family uh, and there was lots of pre-warnings about this at the beginning of the film when he initially takes the job in an interview segment of the film he gets told about a previous caretaker who went mad and killed his family as well and we think "Mm, something's a bit wrong here so could this be what happens later on could this be something that we might need to refer to later on. That is indeed what happens. Uh, And obviously loads of strange goings on happen. And eventually uh, it's a bit of a fight to the death for Wendy and Danny against the Jack Torrance. Uh, That is all I will say for now. We will get into more deeper stuff in a moment, but that's essentially it really. Jack goes mad, the rest of his family try and get out alive. Uh, But moving on to my main topic for this segment of the podcast, Stanley Kubrick himself as a director, I mean, Ace, just as a quick, before I continue on, how have you really, like, what was your first experience of Stanley Kubrick? What was the first film that you saw? Was it The Shining or was it something else?
1: My first uh, Stanley Kubrick movie was 2001 A Space Odyssey. Oh, such a good one. Yeah, such I hated one. it though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> like, I mean, I would say it's a good one to start off with in some respects, like you get used to how weird Kubrick's like Kubrickian (laughs) nature is then in terms of his filmmaking so on one hand whilst you didn't like it it was probably a very good way to get introduced to him because I feel like if people are introduced to him via Lolita or uh, the likes of Eyes Wide Shut I mean Eyes Wide Shut is like the next like the furthest extreme of his filmmaking I would say like in terms of weirdness for me that was a weird one that was such a weird one yeah (laughs) (laughs) yeah no exactly Um, but yeah I would say uh, for me, The Shining always stands out as my favourite Kubrick film, through through and throughout. With Full uh, metal, metal Jacket coming a close second. Same. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, I would say yeah, Full Metal Jacket. It comes. It's the next film after The Shining. It's my one of my favourite. I do like epic war movies when they're done well. I don't like these really boring, drawn out ones that are like. <gasps> they're so dull and like you know you see the same shot of someone getting shot in the field all the time you know and you kind of become a bit desensitized to it which you really shouldn't be the Full Metal Jacket is my second favorite but The Shining is definitely my number one favorite in terms of Kubrick's work uh, I will break you down guys a few of my favorite points about Stanley Kubrick as a director uh, obviously some of you may already know if you've done your research on him he's very much when he made his films he didn't like flying and although he's an American film director and he comes from America and he grew up and based his original, like he started off out in photography initially. So press photography and that sort of stuff for Look Magazine, I want to say it is. Uh, he came along, he did really well in that side of the crib, but he wanted to go into movies. He moved, moved into movie making. And eventually he didn't like the idea of flying. So when he came to live in the UK, cause he did end up living in the UK for the majority of his later life as well uh, with his wife and children, he never wanted to fly anywhere again. So literally everybody had to come to Britain. Uh, and this is especially, I mentioned this as context for The Shining cause a lot of it happened, at, I believe it's Shepparton Pinewood studio, Pinewood studios, it was filmed all in UK studio film system. And he, he never went back To America again if he had to get like any footage for America uh, any iconic imagery then I suppose he'd always send like a second unit abroad and they'd always have to be in contact with him (laughs) obviously if Stanley Kubrick was alive today I'm sure he'd be on like a zoom call I think he'd love the idea of zoom calls I think he'd love the idea of being able to stay where he wanted to be and be able to say look just send me a quick zoom footage of your like your are and I'll be able to green light it. But yeah, I genuinely think he was a very interesting character. People said he was a bit of a recluse, especially in the later stages of his career, especially from the clockwork orange onwards, I would say, with obviously all the big controversy of, a Clockwork Orange being banned in the UK famously as well because of its extreme ultra violence that it referred to, um, even though it is uh, very wit- very witty in some respects, very dark, very humorous, but also, you know, very serious as well, some dark stuff in there. Uh, the one thing I would say about Kubrick though, that stands out the most, not just the fact he's a recluse, not just the fact that in some respects some people thought, not just the fact that he Re- he really chose his projects. Uh, I think me and you, Ace, we mentioned on my podcast, we mentioned how Quentin Tarantino picks his projects very wisely about what he's going to do. And Kubrick did the same thing. I mean, I feel bad that we're not sat here discussing his unmade Napoleon film because Napoleon would it, would have been such a good film in the eyes of Stanley Kubrick. It would have been like yes. Barry Lyndon, but next stage, I think. What, what would you say?
1: You see... Um, going back, like when, when, when I watched 2001: A Space Odyssey, the reason I didn't like 2001 because the ending got me like, you know, what the hell? What happened? But what I enjoyed about Stanley Kubrick is that no matter what movie, you will get numb to his movies. Like I don't know what it is what his directing style or like, the vi- he just gets you on the edge of your seat and will just trap not your heart, but your mind. That's the thing with Kubrick; he goes on the mind. After watching 2001 A Space Odyssey, my second movie was A Clockwork Orange. It was right after I read the book, but that's a different story. I'll talk about it later. But then the third movie was Full Metal Jacket that I loved uh, watching. And then, of course, last but not least, uh, The Shining. What I enjoyed about Stanley Kubrick is that uh, as a director, because of his photography, he wants it to be perfect. Like It has to be like a perfect shot. That's what he's known for. He always wants it to be perfect no matter how many fricking takes he has to do. Like at one point, Jack Nichols had to do like what? 200 takes for one scene. But we're going to
0: get to that later. Yeah, we will do. No, Uh, absolutely. Uh, That is correct. And I would say... You know, like I said, the perfectionism is one thing that also stands out about Kubrick, um, but something I did actually see, and it was in the director's commentary, Vivian Kubrick, who did her little making of Shining documentary on the set of The Shining. Uh, it was only made th- 30 minutes long, unfortunately. Apparently there's loads and loads of rushes, which I'd love to see someday if they ever release them. But yeah, B- the BBC wanted to, I mean, Warner Brothers and the BBC really cut down on how much she could fit in into a very small amount of space but i there's a comment she makes about the fact that he didn't like doing rehearsals he'd never do rehearsals like the first time they start what would be a rehearsal take for some of the directors would most likely be just take one for him and he was always accepting of the fact that take one will never get used take one will be like a rebel. bit he prefers to just go straight in and dive deep in and that's what I think I liked about Kubrick in when I read about him when i see things about him, watch things about him and hear what people have to say about him is the real attention to detail that he had, but also the fact that he didn't like to mess around mess time. He prepared stuff like The Shining for months and months and years on end and ready to shoot. He wasn't gonna just waste half of his shooting time by rehearsing. So he just dived straight in and that meant doing lots and lots of takes. Uh, And the visual style. The visual style of Kubrick I know we have someone like Wes Anderson these days, who's very into his visuals. He has a very specific visual set. He has that symmetrical look in his framing. I think with Kubrick, obviously you do, obviously you get some symmetry in there and you can clearly see Wes Anderson was inspired by Kubrick. It's undeniable, but I would say with Kubrick though, obviously he's the one who really addressed it in the first place. Everything, every shot that he does is like a painting and the thing that i always go back to is the one point perspective shot which is i'm not even sure whether he actually like wes anderson is very much he's very hipstery and he he includes things in in my opinion anyway not a bad thing at all but he likes to include things to such a degree that you know i'm definitely doing this because this is my thing whereas kubrick i feel although he happened to include a lot of the one point perspective shots i feel like Yes, that was his thing, but at the same time, he didn't do it. He might have done it consciously, but also at the same time, he might not have fully done it. Not all the time anyway. Sometimes yes, but sometimes no. Uh, but I do think the one-point perspective shots, especially in The Shining, are the ones that have the most effect overall. So when we're going through the Overlook Hotel, and we have that beautiful sequence where we, have, we follow Danny Lloyd on his little tricycle going around, even though you're following him, everything's perfectly... Well balanced. And also The Shining is a very good landmark film to start. Obviously, people talk about this so much. And this is why. Because The Shining is basically, I know there's other films as well. But essentially, it is the first movie to use the steady cam. Uh, I I forget what the guy's name is. Uh, It was on the top of my head, but I can't remember now. But the steady cam operator on The Shining was the guy who created the steady cam. And I've seen things of how they chased Danny Lloyd around the hotel. They basically got the steady cam which was good enough as it was, they created that. But then to go around at the lowest level possible, they just got him to sit in a wheelchair and they wheeled him around the hotel set. And that's how and that's how you get that such smooth, fluid movement throughout the entire hotel and any of those shots, especially, you know, when you want such low levels, it was a beauty to watch. And with the production design as well, like that carpet strikes the eye straight away there's too much I could go into right now before we get into the symbolism of everything, but the visuals of Kubrick, like, I think nothing is ever done without purpose. Like the visuals are always done purposefully and we will get onto what some of them mean as well. Particularly, I think the carpets, uh, we got the likes of room 237 we'll get onto in a moment and the costume design as well. Little details, so many things that come into mind. And yeah, just generally a beauty to watch. The Shining may seem like it's the most popular Kubrick film.
1: A Clockwork Orange is going to have their 50th anniversary. Mm, Yes. The Shining as well, in the beginning, they were kind of curious because they're used to seeing the act of horror, not the build-up or the psychology of horror, like Rosemary's Baby. But he made it to like celebrating, coming it into a big genre now. He introduced, you mentioned the long city cam shot. He made like my perception of Jack Nicholson always had to be The Shining because the first time I watched Jack Nicholson was the Batman in 1989 with him as Joker. I was like, okay, that's Joker. Then I watched Departed. I was like, great. You cannot go over that, The Departed. I watched The Shining. I was like, oh, boy. And then, of course, Chinatown also. But, like, I cannot get my, hand, my head out of Like, when I think of Jack Nicholson, it has to be Jack Torrance. And The Shining is the one that brought him, I think, without The Shining, we didn't see the madness of Jack Nicholson and we would have not seen
0: him in Joker. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Like you mentioned so many highlights of Jack Nicholson's career. Like I hadn't forgotten them per se, but when you start talking about The Shining, you start turning into a bit like like your nice little intro that we had at the beginning of our episode here. We start going mad ourselves. We start going in on Jack. We zoom in on Mr. Torrance. What would it be? And it'll just be The Shining every time. Because I feel like if you watch something else that he's in, it's a very much a case of, oh, well, uh, it's Jack Nicholson. Like, you know, and you think always in the back of your head, it's the guy from The Shining. It's the guy from The Shining. And you can't always, I know some people will probably say, oh, that's ridiculous. You've got to shake that out. But like, genuinely, it happens for other people as well. Like, there are several people that you just grow up watching, uh, like when you see the film for the first time, and you're like, that is what it's got to be for the rest of my life. That is, that's it. It's like there are TV characters that you see that you think that actor can be no one but that character. And some people say that's typecasting, but at the same time, it's more really just some people latch on to a certain role than others. And I think that's a real reflection on both, not only the actor themselves and their actual performance. So Jack, uh, in this case, Jack Torrance as the character, was much more of a iconic role than I would say for me than any of the others and I know one Flew, uh, one Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest is a brilliantly celebrated masterpiece of the 70s in terms of one of his best bits and one of his upcoming moments from his early career but The Shining will always like when actors die god forbid the day Jack Nicholson dies he will always be remembered for The Shining always 100% absolutely
1: well, we, we can still always celebrate him as like the the man with uh, two Oscar uh Like two Oscar, uh, he's like a two-time Oscar winner for the best actor in a leading role. Regardless of the the uh, the awards, it's always his movies that got to us, whether in our childhood or like uh, for our love of movies. The Shining has to be the defining moment of Jack Nicholson as the Madman. Yeah, and uh, Kubrick was very good at predicting the future. Like now, Mm -hmm. all of his movies are celebrated even though he had to deal with a lot of death threats. But Kubrick is celebrated as one of the best directors of all time for introducing 2001 A Space Odyssey that led to Star Wars and Star Trek. But also with long City cam shot, he opened the doors for long City cam shot. He opened the doors of playing with our mind, especially like whether it's violence or just like conspiracies and all that stuff. We see yeah. Quentin Tarantino with violence. We see Wes Anderson with his perfect symmetrical shots. Kubrick raised the bar but he let others to raise it as well.
0: Exactly. Uh, So I think there's a lovely thing, just sort of end our Kubrick part of this podcast. I would say um, there's a lovely phrase. There's a bit of a documentary. There's loads of features on him, but there's a good moment. I think it's Steven Spielberg that says this. He's like, everyone is standing on the shoulders of Stanley. Most people, obviously he's standing on the shoulders of those that came before him, but quite a lot of people are stood on the shoulders of Kubrick. Whether you like it or not, A lot of your favorite stuff has evolved from kubrick and that you know that can be conveyed through several things such as visual cues and especially symbols which i think we're going to go and talk on to right now
1: let's get to it
0: right welcome back to the next segment of the podcast with ace and david all right so i think the
1: uh the first thing uh we need to mention is the floor is yours david the overlook hotel
0: Overlook Hotel. Absolutely. Uh, this is, for me, one of my favourite bits of sort of things that I like to unpick about The Shining. The Shining as a whole, I love to watch as a movie. I love to do, like, the simple thing. I like to just be like, it's a movie. I'm accepting it as watching. It's fine. When you unchain the film, since we're here on uh, Films Unchained, there. <laughs> uh, thank you, uh, I would say the I love looking at the compare i like to compare so the overlook it's probably it's been said loads of times already but it's my favorite little thing that i like to pick out and it's the overlook hotel and the maze combined so the overlook hotel itself is essentially one in the same with the maze the maze and them they're interconnected and the reason why this is obviously quite an obvious thing to point out really is and i go back to that moment that steady the steady cam shots of danny on his little tricycle going around, which is repeated a couple of times before we get the little sudden shock boom. Whoa, girls at the end of the corridor, they're going to kill you uh, moment <laughs> with the creepy twins. Uh, we, you know, I love the fluidity of that shot and the fact that we're followed We're changing rooms so often, so often, and you're getting lost in the moment within this and the steady cam actually has a lot to answer for for that one, because if we didn't have the steady cam in any sort of formal respect, we wouldn't be able to get that fluidity where we could just get absolutely lost where you're completely focused on Danny on his tricycle. and yes, the surroundings like if you choose to watch the film and watch the surroundings, then yes you'll notice the change of scenery but really you're mostly focused on him, which is what makes that moment where he bumps into the uh, the Grady twins at the end of the corridor even more shocking because you're like boom, they're there. Uh, but the thing that also why i compare this obviously i'm going on a tangent with this i'm not really because you compare it to the maze and whilst you don't get that same boom factor where you bump into something in the maze because obviously the main sequence in the maze is the snow filled maze at the end of the film towards the end of the film where jack is chasing danny through the snow and it's like is he going to get him is he not is he going to get him at all and you run through that maze and you get that sense of urgency and terror and horror whereas the maze uh, in terms of the hotel when you're following Danny you're you're like what's going to happen you're you're looking for something to happen whereas the maze obviously is an evolution of the hotel whereas you're not you're not constantly thinking where is it going to be you're thinking oh where like where is it going to be but it's behind you rather than ahead of you and obviously because of the big like the big motions of the hotel. It's such a big set, just like the maze, that's the physical similarities. So, I mean, Ace, what would you have to say, sorry about that?
1: You know, you just really like, uh, you brought something in my head about the similarities between the two, because I have something about the maze, but not the hotel, but you, but you brought like a point. Notice how like only Danny and um, Wendy were the ones who went uh, around the maze and of course around the hotel. Mm. Whereas Jack only stayed in few areas, and that's it, which is the big ass living room, and of course his own room. And you notice that like, he he does have like issues of like going around the place. And I can I can go on with with the maze, uh, but I feel like there's more into the Overlook Hotel similarities with uh, the maze. What do you say, David?
0: Uh, yeah, no, absolutely I agree. Um, I'll let you do that in just a second. But yeah, I would say. Yeah I honestly think like I said the constantly running away from something you're always in in fear of something both as the audience and if you were in the moment itself if you put yourself in Danny's shoes it's quite funny actually those two scenes that I point those out really because Danny is always running from something like he's not running away in the hotel he's just aimlessly, or you could really argue, actually, because we'll get onto this later. One of the themes that sort of comes up in this is the idea of uh, domestic abuse within the family, and the fact that the idea, one of the ideas behind this, is that Danny was abused uh, by his alcoholic father. So Jack was an alcoholic prior to the events of the film, which are explored in part through a little bit of an exchange through the um, bar scene in the Gold Room, which is another favourite of mine. Uh, But you, you get the sense that he's on his tricycle running away from his father, trying to find some sort of escape in the hotel, and then bumping into the Grady twins is kind of bumping into like, kind of really saying, you've got to face your fears, you've got to confront the issue. Um, But at the same time, it's also like, it's almost like the hotel was trying to confine him in that space, even though like, it's not really helping Danny at all. Whereas obviously and it's the same thing for the maze. The maze is a never ending, just like the hotel set where you're always going around in constant circles. You're, you're getting lost in this maze and he's on the run from his father in the maze. He's literally running away from him because he's gone mad. And that's literally the whole, the visual uh, visualized version of uh, him being an abusive father in terms of that, idea behind it uh whereas the other one is a little bit more sort of oh he's right he doesn't want to spend time with his dad because obviously we get the weird exchanges during the film where he's with his dad he's sat on his lap and he's like i wouldn't hurt you and it's just really unnerving uh but yeah i would say the um overlook itself it's a character in itself it's a part of the film that i love the most in turn, the maze is great and the end sequence is great but the overlook hotel and its ghostly properties. Now I know Kubrick didn't really want to do an all-out ghost story in terms of like hauntings and spooky things like you know because I feel like I feel based on things I've read about him and what he said about the idea of a ghost story I feel like he was very much opposed to that classic Scooby-Doo thing. He didn't want it to be that glorified really oh look it's behind you kind of ghostly thing. He really wanted to delve deep into the psychological horror of it all. And that is where we get to stuff like the gold room. The gold room is a beautiful sequence where he walks in and he meets the barman who's not there. He, he, he's in his mind. And rather than being a ghost, it's more relating to what Jack sees in his mind's eye. Not just like, it, and the hotel, yes, might have some sort of psychic properties that are influencing Jack's mind, but at the same time, it's not like, all the ghosts just happen to be here. Uh, you know, they happen to be hanging around. It's because of him that they're there. And that's why I think the Overlook Hotel is a very important part of The Shining is, you know, it's a character in itself and also that lovely, wonderful bit where we hear the music slowly teetering in. And then you get Jack walk down the hallway and you think, oh, it's just an empty room. And he's transported back to a 1920s little party. I just, I, I, it gives me chills every time I see it come on screen.
1: It's Whenever amazing. I see, I see that final scene, I'm like, wait, what I, like, I, I, it was that movie that I got to study, like whether documentaries or, or, YouTube videos, like trying to understand what it's about to, to connect with that picture. I need to connect to the symbol of the intro. Like it's like a, like a symbol within a symbol.
0: Yeah.
1: In the introduction, we see a long drive uh, of Jack going to the Overlook hotel. But it was, it was like being like a very slow, weird, you know, music. And all of a sudden you hear like that suspense and then the, it, the, the name comes up. It's like you, you can expect something bad is about to happen. What was, but what was interesting about the intro tickets, like it's as if a ghost or a soul is following Jack when he's driving. Maybe there's like a troll, like, like Jack going mad and there's going to be a soul from the past that's going to go to him and it's going to make him to do some tragedy. I feel like the intro shows the ghost of the past going to the Overlook Hotel because he mentioned, I feel like I've been here, defo- uh, been here before, whether it's like deja vu or something. Point fact, like that's basically uh, the, the longer version or the European version of the movie. There's two different versions. And in that extra scene, he said that I've been there before. It's kind of like deja vu. So the minute he said that, I was like, okay, that means he's been here before as in like his demon twin uh, before. And then it got to basically the Overlook Hotel.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I I would even say, because one of my big sort of theories is with the whole Delbert Grady thing, whilst we do get that introduction at the beginning of the film, uh, where we get the interview and we get that little bit of insight of sort of exposition saying, you know, uh, this guy, he killed his kids and killed his wife. And, you know, and we then meet a guy, which is meant to be Delbert, uh, meant to be the guy, the Grady the guy Grady who actually killed his family and the one that Jack was warned about and said oh yeah this happened and you know he wasn't put off by it and then he suddenly gets a whoa moment like are you the the Dilbert Grady and it's it's very very haunting in the sense when he goes oh, oh my wife and children are still here like in a way it's kind of saying oh it hasn't happened yet but obviously it's a weird juxtaposition between the 1920s setting and the fact that this event, I think it happened maybe five years or 10 years prior to the events of this film or something like that. But it really genuinely, it's very creepy in the sense I had a theory that basically the Delbert Grady, to avoid the cheesiness of there being two Jacks, uh, being two Jack Nicholson's on screen, I actually think that the ghost of Delbert Grady as it were that we see on screen the guy that takes him to a side to clean his shirt off is actually that Jack that we see in the end of the film in that final picture that picture that we see right at the end of the film and you go oh you've always been here Mr. Torrance and the fact that yeah this idea that he once existed in that hotel and his ghost was reincarnated and was coerced back to this hotel that he knew and has sort of gone over and over again and these events constantly in repeats but everything slightly changes ever so slightly because the two incidences that involve the murdering of family members yeah there's two daughters and now there's a son and a wife but now it's very much it's changed it's changed so the circumstances change every time and I feel like that's one of my biggest theories about The Shining is that Jack is always being constantly reincarnated and he's always meeting an echo of himself, which I think Kubrick actually wants to get across is the fact that these ghosts that we see are more echoes of what has been. And it very much is a case that, you know, he ultimately keeps meeting himself and that sense of deja vu, oh, I've been back here again. You get that sense of, he has been here again. And the theory that I have is the fact that he's always reincarnated and his purpose in life is to always be part of the overlook. He's part of the fabric of the overlook. So everything's always dragging him back. And when the moment when offspring of his actually has powers that contradict his mission, as it were, that really spooks the echoes as well, or the ghosts or the vibrations in the hotel. So that really unnerves them, which is then what always sets him off on this, sort of plane to kill the family
1: <laughs> honestly that's a very good point um, just a point of fact with the Dilbert Grady when he when when he was asked like if you're the Mr. Grady a point of fact that when they in, introduced the idea of like Grady killing his his daughters is that his name was Charles Grady but then in the in the bathroom scene he's uh Dilbert Grady so mm, like, why yes. are there these two different names Dilbert is his demonic soul And him talking to Jack, I was like, yeah, that just to show that Jack is definitely the trouble soul, whereas Danny is the opposite. And I think, you know, there's this idea like uh, the evil coming from the good and the good coming from the evil. Uh, Danny was the good uh, coming from the evil, which is Jack, a troubling alcoholic person. And what I understood, I feel like that Danny was, was, uh, I don't want to say like he was an accident. Because from what I understand from the movie is that he didn't want to have a family. But what's interesting is that all the symbols that we have goes under the one thing, which is the Overlook Hotel, which you uh, brought up. So technically, the rest of the symbols are like the sub-symbols, or as the biggest symbol is the Overlook Hotel. The idea of having um, a-, a demon side, Kubrick wanted to show that you don't need ghosts. I think the real uh, horror is your conscience. And which one is it? And you yeah, no. wanted to go that way.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. I definitely say that he makes it. Although it's psychological horror, there's some sort, of, there's creepy supernatural forces at, at play here. He is focusing very much on that very human uh, issue. Then the human side of things, and whilst it, it there's a lot of weird goings on, uh, especially in the moments where there's the moment where we, like you mentioned, there's different facets to this. Overall psychological breakdown. I suppose you could look at this really as the Overlook Hotel is the overall mind, and and each moment within the film where something goes wrong, or there's a little splinter, is a little fracture in the mind of whoever it is latched onto, and in this case, it's Jack Torrance. And you know, you can even look at the moment where we go where Shelly Duvall's Wendy is running around the hotel madly with a knife running around going oh god do don't know what's going on and she um runs into that room where she sees the gentleman in the white tie uh, essentially i think he's performing fellatio or something like that or some sort of weird sexual act on a guy in a bear costume and like and again that's the whole thing obviously if you link it into the idea of this domestic abuse uh, theory that uh, is quite prevalent in most writings about The Shining is that Danny has been abused and it's kind of like Wendy waking up up to it. And you see a teddy bear, there's a teddy bear in the, it's it's in a deleted scene in an extended version, but you do also see it in the theatrical version as well. There's a teddy bear, which he has with him uh, in one of the little smaller scenes. And, you know, it's kind of that childhood innocence has been taken away by a man who's meant to be, who's very much in in some sort of authority and it's kind of weird as well because if we're thinking about Jack as this soul that keeps coming back to life and being reincarnated the man himself who's doing that weird stuff to the bear he is an old man and the bear is you know it's very disturbing in that respect Um, but like back to the main point is the Overlook Hotel is the mind and then everything else is just a fracture which latches on to different parts of the minds. So like I said, the, the bear is the part of the domestic side of things. And then as well, we, I think we could link into room 237 here. Room 237 is particularly a big fracture, a big fracture we yes, enter.
1: Yes, yes.
0: Wow, yeah, I just realized something. Like, I don't know.
1: Kubrick has this common factor. He always wanted to show like, how the corrupted authority will ruin uh, everyone's life. Have you noticed that?
0: Mm, yeah, no, I, I, I have it. I think, to be honest, that that's more that's definitely noticeable in stuff like um, Full Metal Jacket because of the ranks and stuff, yeah. uh, and also particularly in Lolita, as well because of teacher authority, schoolgirl, that side of things as yeah. well. That authority being broken. Obviously, we have got this with Danny as well. So I, I, I can see that. Yeah.
1: cuba curate here a weird one. <laughs> Going to room two thirty seven. Uh, after I watched The Shining for the first time, the, the one thing that I watched on Netflix, uh, it's not there anymore, was the documentary called Room 237, which observes basically what does it mean and all that stuff. But I feel like, but it felt like it was basically talking about the movie in general, about its conspiracy theories. So I had my own ideas. So let's just go like to Room 237. We heard from the conversation between uh, Danny and uh, Dick Halloran was that he has to stay out of room 237. Mm. And uh, we always see like, uh, whenever D- Danny goes on his uh, small boy goes around We see the room 237, we were like, don't go, don't go, don't go. And he didn't go. But then when there's like a ball, he entered, but then he came out all traumatized, beaten up, like, like assaulted, uh, then basically what's interesting is that Wendy looked at Jack, looked at Danny, and she's like, you know, you're responsible. Why are you doing it? Basically blaming him for beating him up. Hmm. So that was the, the glimpse. Even if you watch just like the normal, like short standard version of the movie, it gives you the idea that Jack is abusing his own child. Because hmm. why would Wendy just looking at him and just straight up talking about him even though like we haven't seen it yet. Then of course, Jack entered after his, the, the, the gold room, which we will talk about later uh, on more about it. He entered the room uh, 237. He saw a naked woman in the, uh, coming out of the bathtub. He seems to be like really enjoying it, makes out with her. But then in the mirror, he looks at her like that she was getting like, well, I guess I'll say like rotten then turns into an old woman, and she wants him to hold her like forever and ever and ever. What was interesting is that I'm connecting the two in that one movie. The Room 237 shows the true fear of the person entering the room. Danny's fear was his own father, because he's coming out of the room all abused and traumatized. Jack's fear is long-term commitments, because when he sees uh, like a hot, like a very hot woman turning into an old woman, he he's afraid of the long-term commitment, and he didn't want to stay with her. Now imagine that them them two want to stay out of that fear because they don't want to deal with it. Danny's fear makes sense, but it shows that Jack is just like he's like a about to like once things short term you um, want at one point he called Wendy uh, the conversation between uh, Jack and Lloyd a sperm bank
0: so room thirty 237 shows the true fear of a person I'm not gonna lie I didn't think of it like that at all I, I genuinely i I've always thought it was I, yes I thought it was h- latching onto the mind of the most distraught people in the in the sort of the most sort of fractured people fractured minds so you've got jack who's abusive you've got danny who's been abused and obviously uh, for the reason why i think obviously um wendy starts to see things she starts to actually see the ghost so the the guy goes great party isn't it the the guy with the with the uh, like the head blood c- gushing from his head uh, with his little glass of gin or whatever he's got a uh, whiskey I, and obviously, so she's traumatized, so she's finally seeing it. So I kind of agree, I do agree with you, but that I never really thought of Room 237 as being the, the sort of wound where we actually get to experience our deepest fears. I just thought it might have been just like haunted, really, uh, by it was just another part of the apparition for the whole hotel, whole hotel as a whole. But to actually insert a basic the- a fear idea, like this idea that fear is most exposed when you go in this particular room, that makes a lot of sense because you get to really, you know, enter in there every, and once you come out, you never come out the same because you've confronted your deepest, darkest fears uh, or f- individual fear as it were. So yeah, I, I'd agree with that.
1: Yeah. So that's my take of uh, room 237. And since we're talking about like how like Wendy going around and seeing like how she's getting traumatized and everything, There's this one take, which is in the, of course, like in the long uh, sequence. And of course, like they showed it with Danny, which is blood coming out of the elevator. Mm, Yes. And I remember watching the first time it was a trailer. And the only thing that was shown in the trailer was just uh, the elevator showing like the the name of the movie directed by whom, starring whom. And then when it's done, they showed the blood coming out of slowly and then fills the room. I was like, what the hell is that? And we see this twice in the movie, one with Wendy, one with uh, Danny. And we're trying to understand, like, what is that? What does that mean? What does the blood symbolize? What is it, David?
0: I mean, for me, I would say, obviously, because of when it's shown, when you see the blood, it's more... I think it's when certain, I I want to sort of relate it back to, obviously we keep talking about what the movie, what is the movie about? Uh, It's about several things. And obviously that documentary, Room 237, explores so many theories. Uh, Obviously I keep mentioning this, but the idea that sort of makes everything kind of make more sense is this idea of abuse within the family uh, and domestic abuse. Uh, Specifically, obviously with Danny, when Danny sees it, you see the blood coming out of this uh these elevators they're lo- they're sealed doors and i feel like the blood coming out of the doors is very obviously blood in traditionally is meant to be death pain and if sort of um danger then the color of red is usually associated with danger i i feel like as well as representing the danger is being let out and the fact that jack has made it to the overlook cuz doesn't he actually see if i'm correct in thinking he sees the the blood before he gets to the hotel, I think, possibly, I think. Uh, wait, did you say Danny or Jack? Danny. He he saw, like, like the
1: blood uh, when he was, like, talking to Tony in the bathroom.
0: Yeah, okay, that's fine. So, yeah, I would say... So he sees the that flash of it to start with. So he sees it twice. So he sees it in the bathroom as he's talking to Tony, and Tony's telling him not to go to the hotel. And that image is basically saying, if you go... The floodgates will open, the pain will be un uh, sort of unravelled, and everything that you thought you'd bottled up, in this sense, the domestic abuse, the tra- the trauma, then the trauma that he's faced before that he's locked away. If he goes to the overlook, the pain, so the blood, the danger will be unleashed. It will be unlocked. That uh, and when obviously we have that that montage where we actually it's, we see his face in in that little moment where we see his face screaming and he's actually from the... It's from a scene in the Overlook when he's actually at the Overlook when they've made it there later on in the film. That is the personification of you've let the monster out of the cupboard. You've let it out. That's what I think the blood means personally per se. I, and the, the gushing. And once it's gushing all over and you see it go all over the camera lens and everything, that's basically saying you've let it out and it's flooding everything. The mind... The sanity, everything—that's That's sort of what I think about that. I haven't thought about it that way,
1: because you know the because my my point of um, I guess like my point of perspective, like what it meant. We remember like in the description, like of, of, of the movie that uh, the Overlook Hotel was uh, was built um, in the ancient uh, like above the ancient burial grounds. Yes, and I was like, okay, so it's it's uh, it's built on the, in front of the ancient burial ground. Uh, and in the sight of it, sorry. My theory is that these, uh, the, the blood was basically symbolizing that the, the souls that were basically killed in the hotel or like the the native, uh, like the natives that were basically buried under the hotel and it's all collected with their blood just coming out of the hotel. Because when, when you hear like throughout the movie, like especially with Jack, you hear like these voices, like demonic or like or like a call kind of thing, like mm-hmm. a calling. Especially like in the maze uh, when Jack yells something, is like, that doesn't sound English. You're right. I feel like you're right. And at the same time, it's always my point of perspective. I think that the thing is with, with the shining is that what it the shoe fits. I don't know what color of the shoe, but it fits.
0: Yeah. And I would say those voices, sorry, sorry to interrupt you, but well, I say those voices as well. It's a very I don't think it's intentional, but I think there's the Monolith in I know you don't really like it as much, but the Monolith in 2001 a Space Odyssey that that sort of choir based those screaming voices from another world. I feel like You can easily, it's not intentional, I don't think at all, but it's a nice link you can make saying, maybe this is some other thing as well, some otherworldly force. Because the idea of 2001 Space Odyssey is that the higher beings are coming down to sort of form humanity and make sure it goes in the right way. And that's what the monolith is. It's there to sort of point humanity in the right direction because the apes learn how to advance themselves and learn how to, like they learn how to kill and then kill to survive and so forth and then adapt and sort of evolve over time whereas and that happened with this massive gush of crescendo of sound of voices i feel like the voices in the shining are very much a case of whilst they are ghostly it's a case of evolving them to a higher plane maybe so the higher plane you have to burst past the the idea that of sanity is a construct you have to go past that you have to go beyond and you have to go mad yourself to get to the next plane but that's just a little extra tidbit from me i
1: think that, that i think that sums up basically the blood in the elevator
0: yeah <laughs> uh,
1: i feel like uh, going i just want to go back to the maze there's something that really got to me mm. when i remember men, I, I mentioned earlier like how wendy and danny are always going around the hotel in the maze whereas jack didn't mm. uh whether in the hotel or in the maze like danny tracked jack in the maze to save himself and his mother which was amazing ending from his side uh and we saw, of course, early, like, uh, Wendy and Danny have no trouble going to the maze around because they, they, they have it in the back of their head. It's kind of similar to, like you mentioned, the Overlook Hotel, which is, like, a weird structure kind of a thing. And they have the... What's strange enough, like, Jack has the hedge maze in the hotel, in the living room. You can, can just look at it. But yet, he could not even figure out how to get out of the maze in the end of the movie.
0: Yeah. No, I, I think it kind of might demonstrate, like, a... I don't know I feel like again it's linking back to this idea of the overlook like anything on that side like Jack's side of things so I don't not to sort of simplify too much but in the sense the evil side of things the madness then that side of things the maze is a symbol of hope and a symbol of confusion and I would say that you're gonna if you know if you're the one way like I feel like if you're gonna link the two, the Overlook is possessed and it's got everything inside it and it's its own entity. And like, it's a bit like, I'm gonna make a very weird comparison here. There's an episode of um, there's an episode of Doctor Who where the TARDIS gets possessed by an entity and it changes the rooms, changes the rooms around. So follow me with this, changes the rooms around and orientates itself to scare the two participants that are running around inside it. The hotel, back to the shining the hotel is very much the same and i feel we get that sense of when you're going around on the trike you're going around the endless corridors you feel like it's never ending and you feel like it could shift potentially the idea of shifting corridors and stuff but the maze is a constant the maze whilst you can get lost in the maze it's a symbol of hope and it's a symbol of you know you can't change it. It's rooted. It's been there for years because there's a there's a thing about the maze. There's a map. There's a sign saying, you know, it's a historical maze and it's there and it's a case of, you know, whilst you've got supernatural stuff going on inside in this interchanging, weird ghostly presence or psychoanalytical presence, you've got this maze which has been there for years and if you're going to link it to the whole idea of Native American Indians and their homeland being built upon, you could have a symbol of hope in the maze and that it is non-negotiable. It doesn't change. It doesn't change at all. And whereas the hotel can change itself through the mind. But you can't do anything once you're outside the parameters of the hotel. I think you just blew my
1: mind. Like, now I understand the Overlook hotel. And then the, the whole thing possessed. And how it shifts corridors. Damn. I don't know what to say. I think that makes sense because, like, one of the biggest... Uh, things that they were concerned in analyzing like uh by by you know film uh professors like in universities and, and like film enthusiasts is basically the structure of the overlook hotel like how the jack entered like the the, uh, the boss's room but there's like an outside view but like in the structure it doesn't make sense but I think but when you mentioned about the shifting cor- uh, corridors, corridor like in Doctor who I never watched it but like when you mentioned that same like now I understand why the overlook is, one of the weirdest structures when they're trying to analyze. So that's an amazing take, uh, on the overlook. Uh, David, I, I gotta always learn something, man. <laughs> Thank you. As, as with the maze, because I think, I feel like that, that, that last thing you say, I think that's the best way to conclude the overlook hotel. Like what does it symbolize as with, you mentioned the maze. It's, uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, constants or, uh, 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 yeah content structure like it doesn't change wherever yeah. you are only the hotel the maze separates uh, Jack and Danny I think that's the best way to uh, end the, the symbolism of the shining and the overlook hotel absolutely uh, before we talk about like the, the themes uh, or, like what's the movie about we need to like uh, have this discussion about television reference Yeah. Uh, you, you see that like in the, in the beginning how like Danny knows things about cannibalism and uh, he was like, "Don't worry, mom. I I I know about and I watch it on television." And then Jack goes like, "You see that? He watched it on television." And then you see um, the, the uh, Dick Halloran and Danny like uh, calling him Doc, and then there's a Bugs Bunny reference. Then you see um, the 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 infamous scene of Jack like, "Little pigs, little pigs, let me come in," and. Uh, I don't know where to start. What do you you think, uh, David? Because I'm still understanding why they do that.
0: I mean, I I think, I I hate to be too simple, but I think the Little Pigs one, uh, whilst it was probably a line that was fed to Jack Nicholson, that one was done in the heat of those millions and millions of, well, not millions, but loads of takes that he did on that exact scene because he did that scene so many times. Um, He really psyched, like, I even read something that Kubrick deliberately gave Jack things that he didn't like Jack Nicholson things he didn't like for his lunch breaks yeah. uh, just to annoy him uh, just to get him unnerved so I think whilst that line could have been fed to him I feel that might have been just a thing in the moment kind of thing but in terms of the other ones the other ones that were actually in the script they are specific mentions you can say they're core to the film it kind of in a way if we're talking about this idea of the hotel constantly shifting and changing and the spirits being very much opposed to change and new things. I For me, I feel like the television and pop culture references, the little that there are, the few that are, they're mostly references to the times outside of the hotel have evolved, but the hotel hasn't. And the hotel doesn't like to move on. Hence why we see a picture of Jack at the end. We see Jack at the end of the, in that picture, he's gone back, back in time. You don't see him in a picture, an updated picture of him with a load of people in like, oh overlook 1980 and it's just him trapped in a picture, you know, it's him back in time. So I feel like it might be a way of the ghosts or the spirits or whatever you want to have you, uh, the ghosts and spirits saying we don't like change, that's a stupid way to find things out, you know, like kind of thinking that they're more superior to this new way of life and such. And it might just, I mean, it might be something else completely, but that's a little random idea I had. And it, it united uh, Danny
1: and Wendy. The maze symbolizes the obstacles to family ties. And you mentioned how like the maze is a symbol of hope. It was a hope for Danny and uh, his mother, but it was death for uh, Jack. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about like the, the picture. I feel like it all, it all goes back to like the gold room which is uh, when Jack mentioned uh, I'd, I'd sell my soul just for a glass. And I think when he, when he said that, I think that the, the agreement was settled that for a, for a glass of drink, it is your soul. And I think like now, like, you know, as, as Jack died, his soul is trapped in the overlook forever. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the best way to conclude it. All right. Moving on to what is a movie about? So, there's a lot of themes in that movie. The first thing we mentioned was the domestic and child abuse. We focus a lot on Jack and Danny, and it's very, um, what's the word I'm looking for, transparent in that movie. But what we also notice is Wendy being in somewhat like an uh, like a emotionally abusive relationship. Uh, Wendy seems like a very sweet mother. Like she always wants to make things uh, happier and helpful but she seems very terrified of Jack whenever he gets uh, angry at times, or actually trying to be supportive, kind of like a Stockholm syndrome kind of a deal. To go back, like how in the past, especially in, 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 the, in, in the drinking uh, scene with Lloyd and uh, Jack, is that, that he dislocated Danny's shoulders by accident uh, prior to the story, three years prior to the story. And he mentioned that Wendy will never forget that wendy in the in the extra scene like in the european version of the shining she said that oh it, it was an accident he was an alcoholic uh but when he said that again he doesn't seem to have anything about alcohol he says something about like he was messing with his just like pulling him and it, it, just to show that you know jack is not the fitting father in that movie compared to the book of
0: course absolutely Um, i think you've summed that part of it up really very well um what i would like to sort of the the next sort of stage that i don't think i can really add much more to that uh but i would say the you then look at the next side of things um isolation from the real world and society that you can link those two in very well in the sense that jack is taking his family away obviously because under pretense that it's for a job it's just for the winter months and alone in the hotel. Uh, you can really get this essence of the feeling that Jack is taking them away from the family home and the sense that he's isolating them on purpose in a way. Forget all the ghostly stuff. He's is a perfect opportunity to sort of either get his own back or really feel like I'm, I'm getting in my primal place. I need to sort of clear his head as, as it were, because you can see that he's unhinged from the moment of that like literally from the moment he gets there once he takes that drink he unhinges into his ghostly form
1: you know david you actually brought like a like an interesting connection like two and one i don't want to start i think you know i thought it was like okay maybe you should try because like uh, you know october to may at the overlook hotel you know like and then it's gonna lead to a cabin for because like he's separated from society but i think you brought an interesting connection where like he's away from the society so he can deal with uh his his family as as Tilbury gray says Perhaps they would like a good talking to. Anyways, I think uh, I, the isolation from the real world—it's, uh, it, you know, absolutely amazing how you how you basically connected to the domestic and child abuse, and then the and then and then the the other side of the is basically the cabin fever. I was thinking of the isolation from the real world and society. If The Shining was made right now, it can easily be fit called COVID nineteen. Mm. I think we can all learn from COVID-19. Like there are people who cannot deal with things uh, uh, by isolating themselves. And of course we see at times where people are getting mad of this pandemic. That's why we see protests, like especially the anti-maskers, but that's a different story. Um, But we see that they've had enough. And if it continued, chances are the the society is gonna be messed up and then next thing you know, hell broke loose. But I think my points are not as big as, you know, what you mentioned, how it connects to domestic and child abuse. So as as usual, David, I always learn new things from you as well.
0: Oh, thank you very much. (laughs) No
1: worries. Um, The next part uh, of of what's the movie about, like the themes is, you know, they mentioned a lot about the the socioeconomic thinking and status. I think the best uh, uh, to want to, to look at first is The Gold Room floor is yours
0: yeah no exactly um obviously we get this sense of wealth and status when you get the the family the torrences are very much middle america what they're presented as just as middle america you see danny at the beginning with his like cartoons that he watches and you know the 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 t-shirts and stuff the jumpers and stuff he wears you know he's they're all middle american that that's very very clear from the beginning but the gold room even though you're going back in time you see Jack walking among them and you can tell he's not part of them and that idea that you mentioned before of like you take the drink and that's you selling your soul and that's him joining them joining the overlook for good that's what that is he walks in and he's not dressed like them and he you know you get the sense that and he's got no money there's a thing as well your money's no good here there's a sense of you need to do something to gain entry into the room into that high society club to basically um be accepted to have your money accepted basically and i do feel the sense that obviously once we see jack become part of that overall that picture right at the end of the film the the death his death is his own currency into that higher plane that higher society he becomes part of that upper lifestyle and obviously you know there's other things that could be read into it but that's sort of an initial thing that i would get from that as well
1: i thought the the idea of your money's no good here was because since like the gold room is about like you know the the golden age you know like in the 1920s
0: yeah exactly When he
1: mentioned uh when lloyd mentioned your money's no good here i thought because maybe had like you said they're like 10s and a 20 um i think like i thought that means that you know the gold standard in that scene was in effect like in the, mm. how before like $1 you can like, I don't know what you can buy with $1 before, but like it was a big thing. Yeah. Uh, and I think he had the 20. I think, I thought that when Lloyd said, your money's no good here, I thought he was trying to say that, you know, it's not, a, uh, it's yeah. uh, the gold standard is still in effect. I don't think you need to pay like 10s and 20s. You're a rich man and all that. So that's what I thought.
0: Mm, yeah, that as well. I agree on that. It was
1: interesting because when you mentioned uh, your point it all goes back to when he he goes orders from the house like what does that mean
0: mm. it kind of sort of cements this idea that the overlook is this entity it is this uh, it is own entity and you the house orders that you know he gets by it, this is what needs to be done so that he can join us. He needs to do this first. It's kind of a bit like, you know, when someone enters and goes, you, you have to do this for me. It goes back to that oldest trick in the book where you go back to something like the Wizard of Oz and it's like, you must bring me the witch's broom to prove your worth. In this case, murder is his worth. And, that, and it ultimately death is his currency to get to that.
1: That's an actually interesting connection to the, to the intentions of uh, Jack in the end. Like he's trying so hard to kill, for the sake I guess like fit, fitting in, I guess we could say. Yeah. Wow, uh, there is a lot of social hierarchies in in this hotel. Like whether it's like, like you know, like a uh, the the showmanship side or just like the action side. Yeah, you know. Do you notice how like there's racism in that movie as well? How? Yeah. Between Dilbert Grady and Jack, how like uh, Dilbert said that your son has a telepathic gift and he communicates with someone who's gonna save him. And he refers to uh and the N words, or like the N word
0: cook. Like, yeah, what? yeah, yeah, no, I, I know what you mean. Uh, it's, yeah, it, it kind of installs that the old fashioned values of the 1920s it kind of justifies the fact of why is the gold room in the 1920s why couldn't it be the 50s why couldn't it be present day why couldn't it be just people from like two weeks like similar to people who would have stayed in the hotel two weeks ago i think the the use obviously i'm not going to read too much into that personally i personally didn't read much into that i would say it reinforces the 20 setting a little bit that's one way you can look at it but ultimately i think it's again it's looking at it's treating using that concept of other, the othering. Uh, and obviously it's very negative in that respect. So it uses that sense of, as well as obviously the racial issue there, it also brings up the whole the telepathic sense of people being outsiders because of certain abilities that other people don't have. Certain qualities, certain ways people are that aren't the same to those in that room. Because if you look in that room, they're all white people. Yeah, they're all white people in that room. I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I don't think you can see a single, a single person of color in that room because, genuine, it genuine, and that fits with the time, and also would fit with that sense of othering. So, in that respect, that's a negative side to the film as well. Like, not the sort of thing that I picked up initially, but I can, I can see that now. I can think of that now because you mentioned that, but not something I initially thought of.
1: The shoe fits, David. And... Yeah. Yeah, uh, a lot of basically the, the, pre, the old status of thinking was is still applying in the Overlook Hotel. I think mm. that's one of the reasons you mentioned, like, how come there's no pictures of, like, Jack in the 1970s, just only the, the 1921, uh, It was July 14, 1921. Mm. I think because it's like, saying, like, the Overlook will always be applicable in that era. I think that's why. But going back to this, uh, the socio- the, like the status, you notice how, like, Jack always defines himself, like, as a writer. Uh, Instead of the caretaker. Like he always talked about like how he has a writing project. He always blames Wendy for disrupting him uh, to achieve his goals in life. He always says like when he was doing his madness scene about that, you've had your whole effing life to think things over. He always talked about like, have you noticed for a solitary second about like how uh, his, his uh, employers signing a contract until May the 1st, like he, he's trying to make himself big, which is uh, interesting because like, like that's an old style of thinking. Like he's like, oh, my employers, i like, you're a caretaker, not, not, a, not, not a politician, not an important guy. You're just a caretaker. Like signing contract is a contract is a normal thing for any employee you can do. But but caretaker is not a big thing. You're you're basically taking care of an empty hotel, where in which Wendy is doing that. She is a better caretaker than Jack. All he does is sitting around and just
0: writes. No, uh, absolutely. No, I can't agree more. I I would say moving on to like linking that into one of our other points, the what the movie is about. So this delusion between insanity and possession. Uh, like obviously that you think uh, you know it's clearly he's insane but in most respects but this i we discuss things that the idea of him being possessed this idea that you know his employers are possessing him that's what makes him insane so i think this whole it's not insanity or possession i think it's a mixture of the two and linking to your point about him getting ideas of like grand ideas above his station then that's a mixture of the possession talking which is making him sound insane.
1: You're right, honestly, it's it's the biggest question of the movie, is Jack insane or madness? He's going mad because, honestly, I think it all goes to how he's a a failure. I'm I'm gonna say that, like he's a failure, like he couldn't even keep his teaching job. And Wendy mentioned that uh, we need to leave And then he's going mad. He's like, I've done things like washing cars and all that stuff. And you're still not thanking me. And he goes mad for for absolutely no reason whatsoever. Like she goes based on protection, what's uh, best for Danny. But he cares about what's best for himself. And if no one's taking care of that perspective, uh, he's going mad. No pun intended, but he's going mad. You know, like the, the I think the the, the the iconic scene about the insanity was the "all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy." Repeated number of times, and we thought he was actually writing, but all his pages is going back to "all work and no play makes Jack a dull boy."
0: Mm, no, exactly. Yeah, exactly. The fact that he sort of uh, built himself up through all these different experiences, and he's never really let loose and. I suppose you can link with the whole possession thing, you could say the the, the, the hotel itself has made him uh, let loose as it were, and let loose in this case is very murderous.
1: Yeah, yeah. I think that's excellent uh, thing you said. I think like the hotel you mentioned like it, it brought like you, you mentioned that oh, was the word. How you mentioned like the hotel made Danny to unleash what's what he has to deal with. And the overlook has made Jack to unleash his madness to his to his wife to show his true color um, like much more and that really uh got to me Is like okay the Overlook Hotel will basically be the let's like a chair you take out a piece of nail and it will collapse and Jack has collapsed and he's gotten insane in that part but and people like Oh, well, oh, I think the hotel possesses him. I'm like, yeah, it possesses him. But we possess it. Possessed him. But we cannot deny that before he entered the hotel, he was a bad person. My general theory is basically he's been mad since the start. And I think when he got in the gold, uh, when he entered the gold room and he took that glass of drink, that's when he got possessed. Because you remember the, the, the extended version when he goes here's to five miserable months and when he got that sip he did this face like it's as of like a relaxation or like it's like a needle injected him or like something coming out of him yeah, yeah. no exactly couldn't agree more and uh the when he killed uh with an axe when he got up and you hear these voices i'm like yeah that's 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 possession right there he's he's, he's possessed for real what are your thoughts on that idea of insanity versus possession?
0: I mean, I would say... I think the possession is what drives him insane. Like, like like you say, he becomes possessed the moment he signs that contract through the drink. Because like you say, he gets that relaxed feeling. And then, you know, he leads to the, his insane laughing. And then he has that moment where he has that nightmare. Uh, and I think... I, I just... Simply put, I think the possession is what drives him mad. Because he does have internal um struggle then of what's right and what's wrong. And that's expressed in the nightmare moment where he goes, I killed. I had a bad dream. I killed you and Danny. Um that's his inner turmoil, but then obviously it, that's him, the last bit of the decentness in him, even though he's not really a decent man, last bit of decentness coming out before he's full full-blown overlook and gets frozen and killed in the end <laughs> wow
1: i uh, like how you uh the best way to conclude is like basically possession drives his madness and yeah, exactly uh, and also of course like uh, before he died uh like in, in the cold when he was trying to capture danny and wendy and he says these like callings like, you can tell that that's not Jack anymore. That's just someone possessing him because he was saying some weird things. I thought he was trying to say Wendy, but he couldn't even say it. But I was like, there's no way that Kubrick will leave it at that. I think he's left it on purpose. But yeah, I think that's the best way to conclude what is the movie about, like with all these things connecting with each other.
0: Yeah, exactly. Now,
1: David, we're, let's go to, I think, uh, the biggest one, which is not like out of all of it, but like the biggest one, after the movie released for the first time was Stephen
0: King's take of the movie. I don't like to dwell too much on Stephen King's take. Not not because I don't like, not because I don't want to uh, like acknowledge it. I acknowledge it because I know for a fact that he, obviously he didn't like it. Yeah. He, he it, His initial response to it was that it butchered his book. It butchered ver- various parts of it because it took out so many things in it in in terms of like the visuals that could have been, were taken out. Like for instance, there was in the book, there's a whole thing about, um, I've forgotten what they're called, but like those leaf based like hedges that are designed to look like animals. The hedge Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: yeah. They are a big feature in the book. They come to life in the book, but they're taken out of the film because it would have relied on a lot of like either CGI or some sort of practical effect. And Kubrick, whilst he's a perfectionist, I don't think he was willing to stress that much about such a, like something that could look potentially cheap and tacky, which is I think a point one to Kubrick. Uh, in terms of Stephen King, though, I would say there's several things. Obviously, there's the the red car, which is there when. Um, Dick Halloran's driving through the snow and it's the most popular idea and I'm inclined to sort of believe it that the red car which looks a bit like similar to the red car from I think it's I think it's a beetle I think I want to say anyway a car of some kind is has been crushed by a lorry in the snow and apparently it's very much similar to Stephen King's car and that's meant to be like a big up yours to king or something apparently that's a popular theory i'm inclined to kind of believe that but at the same time i'm kind of not sure that kubrick would be a hundred percent that petty but then i kind of i think it could be but and then obviously you know king overall i think over time king sort of come to enjoy the shining much more than he initially did i think initially it was a knee-jerk reaction all of his negative press though he goes it's a terrible film i hate it it's because he a lot of his work stephen king he always says it's always done from personal experience. A lot of it is very personal to him and they're his creations. And obviously he is an alcoholic himself. Jack Torrance was an alcoholic himself. Jack Torrance is basically based on him. A lot of facets from all his characters are based on his life story. So anything that changes the perceived narrative that he made will be in the, it'll be like, it's like someone has stabbed him in the heart and twisted it. Uh, but i think over time he's learned to sort of forgive and be a little less salty about it um because i mean it's not very popular opinion but i know in terms of dr sleep whilst dr sleep the film and also the book that he wrote the book was basically like a fixer fixer upper for the original for the film that kubrick made and meant to sort of reassert the world and i think in the book it's again it's a bit more petty as well but then the film also kind of incorporates dr sleep film incorporates both kubrick and uh, Stephen King's visions uh, for the original Shining and also that book as well. Uh, it all gets very messy, but I, I think over time he slowly got back to accepting that it was a knee jerk reaction at the time.
1: You know, uh, you're absolutely right. Um, in the beginning, like here, it was like a knee jerk reaction, but then in the, in, in the end, like it was, uh, he was more forgiving. I think the big issue is the miscommunication between uh, Kubrick and uh, King. I don't think Kubrick understood how uh, Stephen King's books are usually personal to him. Yeah. And The Shining was his most personal because uh, him and he had, a, I think he only has one son uh, from my I understood. It's like, he wanted to connect with him during that time. And in the book, in the end, uh, the, uh, Jack had redemption, basically, uh, to connect with his son. And I think King put his heart up because like, he was connecting of him being an alcoholic and wanted to uh, reconnect with his family. And for Kubrick, first of all, he, did, he, did, he didn't know that most of his novels are personal. So when he changed the stuff for him, it's as if, like, uh, Stanley Kubrick saying that, yeah, you could have done this. It all goes to miscommunication at the end of the day. I think uh, King was salty. I'm not going to lie. Stephen King was salty. But understanding his personal side, I, like, to me now, like, I understand it. But no one can understand it. That's the thing. You cannot expect anyone to understand it. No. Which is why, like, over time, like, he, he still uh, hates it. Not because, like, what happened. But, like, he expected, I, I think he expected it much more. But in, in Dr. Sleep, in the movie, uh, he gave, uh, gave them their, uh, his blessings. And he enjoyed it. He believed mm-hmm. that uh, Dr. Sleep definitely fixed uh, his perception and fixed, uh, basically, the story of Kubrick's side.
0: No, no, exactly. And I think it's just a case of, I, yeah, it's a, it's a fixer-upper, but at the same time, there are still many people who would love, like, like we do, like we love The Shining. And whilst I don't mind Doctor Sleep, you can't really, The Shining film is like, it's the sort of totem for me. It's great. Yeah.
1: And, and we're also, we're going to conclude to basically the final take. The Shining, to this day, uh, one of the best movies. Jack Nicholson did a fantastic job even though Shelley Duvall got uh, destroyed by Kubrick, but she brought the character to life. And I think we can all say that out of all the movies, this, uh, The Shining is, uh, well, I mean, equivalent to uh, 2001, is his best. Yeah, absolutely. No,
0: couldn't agree more, Ace. Yeah, well said.
1: He's a chameleon. Like all of his movies are not under the same genre.
0: Mm, no, exactly. He did a nice variation of pretty much any genre. There was always some sort of drama going on, but it wasn't always the same kind of drama. And this one has been a very spooky ride for all of us this episode, I feel. And in terms of, you know, there's lots to dig up, lots to talk about. We could talk about it for hours. We probably have. But I genuinely think it's one of those long lasting, it's haunting film a film that's very haunting to this day. The Overlook is haunting us even to this day.
1: Yeah. Yeah. If he was alive, imagine him being in the same room with uh, Tarantino. That would have been one of the most iconic uh, photos that would ever take place. 100%. Yeah. And we would have seen Napoleon or his version of artificial intelligence, which he gave Spielberg as like a a gift if anything happened to him.
0: Yeah. No, absolutely. Couldn't agree. I would have loved to have sent a, a Kubrick AI um but yeah no absolutely couldn't agree more
1: all right so that we have concluded our discussion of the shining the 1980 classic horror film by stanley kubrick starring jack nicholson shelly duvall and danny lloyd david thank you so much for uh joining on the films on chain podcast as not just a special uh guest host but as the co-host uh once again thanks so much and where can we find you again
0: uh, yeah, so just find so the podcast. Find us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all your favourite podcast sites, and check us out on Instagram and Twitter as well. Especially Instagram, we post lots of good uh, polls, content, and loads of images from the films that we talk about on uh, Take Ninety Seven A Film Podcast. So thank you very much, Ace, for having me on. It's been an absolute pleasure and a thrill of a ride. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you so much, David. Uh, once again, uh, check him out. Take Ninety Seven Film Podcast. And we will see you next time on Films Unchained podcast, where breakdowns, movie analysis, and film talks take place. The Shining is, to this day, one of the best horror movies that I've watched. It is, to me, my favorite Kubrick movie of all time. I think that uh, Stanley Kubrick did a fantastic job, even though he was... Ruining uh, his uh, time, basically his moments with Shelley Duvall because he wants to uh, make her uh, basically to that character. At one point that Shelley uh, gave uh, Kubrick her piece of hair as a token to remember by. It was weird, but it was like a nice symbolism. Like, that's what you did to me. Here's for remembering it. And you mentioned how uh, he made Jack Nicholson going insane for bringing him like food that he doesn't like. It was a cheese sandwich for out of anything he hates. Um, but he made the characters from his point of view coming to life. And that's what makes Kubrick a genius. He did that. And it was not, it's not, this is not the first time he's known for make, changing stuff in the book. He did that with a clockwork orange, where when the, when the first time he read it, he threw it away. But when he got back to it, he's like, I'll do, the, I'll do these things my way which um, Anthony uh, Burgess, uh, the, the author of Clockwork Orange, didn't mind it. Mm. He, and in The Shining, he was on, always on calls with Stephen King, but uh, came out badly. Because at one point, he, he calls him at 7 in the morning. I'm like, out of any time to call, you have to call 7 in the morning, man. And it all goes back to, at the end of the day, you know, you can't expect the director to do exactly what the book says. There's always going to be changes. You see that with it, you see that with The Shining, you see that with many uh, real life stories as well. Like there's a character that's not in the story, but it fits. The Shining to this day, uh, one of the best movies, Jack Nicholson did a fantastic job, even though Shelly Duvall got uh, destroyed by Kubrick, but she brought the character to life. And I think we can all say that out of all the movies, The, uh, the Shining is, well, I mean, equivalent to uh, 2001, is his best. Yeah, absolutely. No, couldn't agree more, Ace. Yeah, well said. He's a chameleon. Like, all of his movies are not under the same genre.
0: Mm, No, exactly. He did a nice variation of pretty much any genre. There was always some sort of drama going on, but it wasn't always the same kind of drama. And this one has been a very spooky ride for all of us this episode, I feel, and... In terms of, you know, there's lots to dig up, lots to talk about. We could talk about it for hours. We probably have. But I genuinely think it's one of those long lasting, it's haunting film, a film that's very haunting to this day. The Overlook is haunting us even to this day. Yeah.
1: Yeah. If he was alive, imagine him being in the same room with uh, Tarantino. That would have been one of the most iconic uh, photos that would ever take place. A
0: hundred percent.
1: Yeah, and we would have seen Napoleon or his version of artificial intelligence, which he gave Uh, Spielberg as like a a gift if anything happened to him.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree. I would have loved to have seen a a Kubrick AI. um, But yeah, no, absolutely. Couldn't agree more.
1: All right. So that we have concluded our discussion of The Shining, the 1980 classic horror film by Stanley Kubrick, starring Jack Nicholson, Shelley Duvall, and Danny Lloyd. David, thank you so much for uh, joining on the Films on Chain podcast as not just a special uh, guest host, but as the co-host. Uh, once again, thanks so much. And where can we find you again?
0: Uh, yeah, so just find so the podcast. Find us on Anchor, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, all your favorite podcast sites, and check us out on Instagram and Twitter as well. Especially Instagram, we post lots of good uh, polls, content, and loads of images from the films that we talk about on. Uh, take 97 a film podcast so thank you very much Ace, for having me on it's been an absolute pleasure and a thrill of a ride thank you very much
1: thanks again david and you're right it's been a hell of a ride it's almost like i've been here before i mean we all had moments of deja vu it was almost though i knew i was going to be around every single corner
0: (laughs) A little slow tonight, isn't it, Lloyd?